Good morning. I'm Donna Quinn. And for the next half hour, you'll be listening to Talk of Our Towns here on KMUN Coast Community Radio. Housing is a huge issue in our communities throughout our state and unfortunately almost everywhere else as well these days. Why is this happening? How did we get here? What's being done and who is doing what? Today, we're gonna to focus on one organization which plays a role in the housing situation. The Fair Housing Council of Oregon is a nonprofit statewide civil rights organization promoting justice, equity, and inclusion in housing across Oregon. My guests are Eliza Gallagher, Education and Outreach Specialist for the North and Central Coast region, which is St. Helens to Newport, and Samuel Goldberg, he is the statewide education outreach specialist focusing on land use issues. Good morning, Eliza. Good morning. Thank you Thank for you. having us. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. And good morning, Samuel. Good morning. Thank you. Before we begin talking about the Fair Housing Council of Oregon, and I will note because you just told me that this is Fair Housing uh, Awareness Month. And so there are gonna be some virtual presentations on your website and all that, we'll talk about that later, but um, it is Fair Housing Awareness Month this month. So before we talk about, again, the history of the organization, what services you provide, you know, kind of why are we where we are in a way, um, please tell the listening audience a bit about yourself personally. Well, uh, my name is Eliza Gallagher um, and I live in St. Helens in Columbia County. Um, and I will qualify, I don't want to leave out Scapoose. So I actually cover Scapoose to Newport or All right. I don't want to be exclusionary. Um, so anyway, I was born and raised in uh, Oregon. And uh, I, uh, when I was graduated from college, I moved to New York City and in that time between then and moving back to Oregon in 2014, I lived in uh, all over the country working and living with people from various backgrounds doing social justice work and uh, education work and social service work. I lived in St. Helens for the past eight years and in that time I've uh, been in social services and um, I'm proud to work for Fair Housing Council of Oregon at this time. Thank you, Eliza. Uh, and I'm Samuel. Yeah, I'm Samuel Goldberg. Uh, I, uh, I live in Portland. I've lived here since 2014. Uh, also lived all over the place. Um, had a really uh, interesting education and, and came to the work, uh, I guess, in starting in college uh, when I was uh, an intern for a uh, U.S. Senator and was uh, working on land use issues there. Uh, and it really just completely you know, I, I jumped into the, the idea of um, using policy to, to help people. Um, and I, it's been kind of a fixation of mine ever since. So I really do come to the work through the, through the land use piece and how that intersects with civil rights, which uh, are, are so core to um, our American values. Thank you both. And um, so let's talk about the history of the organization, the, the why, it, why it was formed, when it was formed, and, uh, and then your mission and, and purpose. Sure. Well, I think we got to start with the, the Fair Housing Act itself. So the Fair Housing Act was passed on April 11th, uh, 1968. 
So we are coming up on the 54th anniversary of the passage of the Fair Housing Act. Uh, that happened exactly one week after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, fair housing, op the open housing movement, as it was called at the time, was uh, one of the most important campaigns that he led during the 1960s. Uh, it was originally supposed to be part of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, but there was pushback even from northern senators. Uh, they just couldn't get it through. It was it was too fractured of a of a coalition at the time. It was too too hot of a topic. And even when it did pass, apparently constituent mail ran against the bill a uh, hundred to one. So this was not something that was popular at the time. Um, but something had to change because in the wake of Dr. King's assassination, the country was at risk of tearing itself apart. There were riots in 125 cities. Uh, it was truly, it truly seemed like America was was falling apart. And so it was clear that we needed a major change. Uh, we needed a way to break down the barriers between neighborhoods, um, to break down segregation and discrimination in housing. Uh, and so originally it was uh, the, the Fair Housing Act said that you could not discriminate in any housing transaction on the basis of national origin, race, religion, or color. And then in the 1970s, uh, sex was added to that. And then in the 1980s, uh, familial status, meaning families with children and disability were added to that. And uh, around that time as well, the federal government, um, uh, the Fair Housing Act is enforced by Housing and Urban Development or HUD. Uh, they realized that something else needed to happen at the local level to make sure that these things were actually being implemented. So they started what was called the Fair Housing Initiatives Project in 1989. And the Fair Housing Council of Oregon started in 1991 in response to that. So we are uh, just over 31 years old as an organization. Uh, and so we're involved both on the education and outreach side, which is what Eliza and I do, as well as the enforcement side. So people can uh, call with uh, to report housing discrimination. We follow up, uh, you know, collaborate with the housing provider if we can and, and make sure that uh, we can get to a resolution that satisfies everyone. And if not, we'll help them with the actual reporting to HUD or even to take things to court in some cases. So we do a little bit of everything when it comes to to that, but uh, we we cover all of Oregon. Yes, and you're the only one. And are these uh, fair housing councils uh, in every state? Yeah, in most cases they cover a particular uh, jurisdiction, you know, or a particular re region. Uh, Oregon, we cover the whole state. Oh, okay, ambitious. And um, so on your website it says. Uh, that the mission of the Fair Housing Council, uh, which is a nonprofit statewide civil rights organization uh, that you proactively promotes housing justice, equity, and inclusion. Uh, your mission is to end illegal housing discrimination, promote equal access to housing choice through education and enforcement of the fair housing law. So thank you for giving us that uh, background. That's really important. So the services that you provide and, and the people you provide them to are, not just people who are trying to to rent or find housing or uh but also you know the landlords and the service providers as well 
I could speak a little bit to that. Um, since I work on the North Coast, I've been, um, and I'm an education and outreach specialist, I do not do any enforcement. So my job is really to um, raise awareness and try to um, bring information to all bodies uh, involved in the housing transaction, whether that is the tenant or the landlord, um, or it could be an advocate of some sort, like um, I know in Astoria, there's the Harbor, which is the women's shelter. I've reached out to them. Um, I can reach out to homeowners associations, reach out to long-term care facilities, any, any place where knowing about fair housing laws and knowing how to push back against discrimination. My job is to educate and, and inform folks about what they can do to empower themselves. So, and that would include even elected officials and every, yes. every I mean, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, jurisdictions uh, are certainly accountable for fair housing laws as well. Um, advertising media, because um, if, a, if a landlord were, for instance, to put in a discriminatory uh, ad for some housing, let's say it said no children, um, um, then not only would the landlord be accountable for that illegal advertising because it's discriminatory based on familial status, but the uh, advertising, uh, say it was the Astorian or the St. Helens Chronicle, just hypothetically, mm -hmm. they would also be held liable for discrimin discriminatory advertising based on the fair housing laws. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that clarification. And so Samuel, how did we get where we are with this housing crisis where we have affordable housing issues, we have homeless, unsheltered population issues, and then we have fair housing issues. Can you give us a little background on why we are where we are right now? Sure. Well, I mean, if you uh, have have lived here a long time, it might seem like it came out of nowhere. But in, in reality, I, I think it, I would definitely argue that uh, this is the, the culmination of many, many uh, uh, decades, generations of decision making. Um, and it could, in some ways, it goes back all the way to the state's founding. Uh, we were the only state in the union that was admitted as a, a free but exclusionary state, right? Where we completely barred uh, the entrance of African Americans into the state of Oregon. Uh, we also prohibited the uh, the ownership of any property or mining claims by Chinese uh, immigrants. So we wanted their labor, but we didn't want to we didn't want them to uh, you know form communities or to uh, become regarded as permanent residents. Uh, those things are actually in the state constitution, right? And uh, the the African American Exclusion Clause was not eliminated until 1927. Uh, the the Chinese uh, uh, ownership, you know, property ownership clause that was not removed until 1943. Uh, and so those things definitely have had echoes through history, um, through through the history of our state. So, uh, you know, after that, we have uh, uh, the the issue of um, of white supremacist violence, the the Klan uh, have had a major presence in Oregon in the 1920s, and that's around the time when a lot of uh, you know Chinatowns that had been pretty spread out throughout the state, uh, as well as African American communities throughout the state, were uh, kind of driven out and driven into the more major cities like Portland, or even driven out of Oregon altogether. 
the the uh, non-white population of a lot of rural Oregon suddenly drops down considerably uh, over that period of time, that 1890 to 1930 time. And then, uh, during the, the uh, Great Depression and then into World War II uh, and then into the post-war post years, that's when you start to see a lot of federal government decisions, uh, the federal government kind of putting its finger on the scale when it comes to housing and, and housing development and uh, creating really a dramatically inequitable situation where, uh, for instance, uh, FHA loans, uh, which are you know, basically the, the types of loans that we know today that, you know, 20 where you're only paying 20% down and you pay the rest of the home loan over 30 years. That was a, a, a federal housing administration, you know, innovation in the, the 1930s. Uh, and then you have things like the GI Bill after the war. And those opportunities were only were pretty much exclusively limited to white people over uh, from in the period from uh, the 1930s to the 1960s out of $120 billion in loans that were backed by the FHA only 2% non went to non whites. So uh, it's this dramatically inequitable situation. And then we have zoning, zoning decisions and suburbia, right? The American dream having a house and all and yeah. that, that affected everything, right? Absolutely. So, so uh, before the 1930s, uh, there was not the sort of formalized urban planning that we know today. Uh, things were very much like one, one building next to another, and they could be different uses and different densities and, and, and different types. Uh, and then formalized zoning kind of comes about in the 1930s, and these things start to be separated. And, you know, there are definitely some things that you want separated, right? You don't want to have your house next to a smokestack, for instance. So that's a that's something that's been really good. But almost from the beginning, zoning has been used not just to separate uses, but to separate people as well. So, uh, you know, that's both in, at the time, it was pretty formalized, like this is where white people live, this is where non-white people live. Uh, but then it started to shift towards more non-formal, you know, informal uh, ways of doing that. So, for instance, saying, well, where the non-white people live, that's where we will build all of our multifamily housing. And where the white people live, that's where we will build all of our single family housing, right? So you have now physical structures that have replaced those explicitly racist structures. And that is very much... Uh, you know where where our housing where the current housing crisis starts uh, because we have gone all in on this method of uh, you know almost exclusively single family housing and now we just don't have enough to uh, to to support the number of people who live here. Thank you. Can I add something uh, specifically around Astoria and and uh, looking at. Uh, affordable housing and fair housing and where they might overlap. Um, I, I just, what Samuel was talking about, uh, kind of low-income people or people of color being segregated by these kind of multi-family uh, uh, complexes. Um, when I drive into Astoria, what I, I, the first sign that I'm close to Astoria is when I pass Emerald Heights which is my understanding is uh, kind of a lower income uh, housing complex, but then you have to drive several miles before you actually reach Astoria proper. 
And my observation is that there's a, whether it's intentional or not, there's a, there's a de facto segregation happening there based on uh, affordability becomes uh, kind of a segregation issue in itself as if the only place you can afford to live in a rural town, or I mean, a rural community is well outside of town and you don't happen to have your own car. Um, that creates a kind of de facto segregation. So in more rural communities where we're not looking so as much at a race, I mean, obviously it's there, it's in our history. I don't wanna say that that's not an issue in Clatsop or Tillamook or Lincoln or Columbia County at all, but we do need to look at how lower income folks are also affected by these kind of uh, policy decisions that are discriminatory. And we see that with, for instance, the um, the uh, vacation, uh, the rentals, short-term rentals that are built um, and how those sit empty for a lot of the time. Um, and then the housing availability becomes less for those who actually need the housing the most. Thank you, Eliza. And um, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Talk of Our Towns. Today, we're talking about housing issues. We're talking about uh, the Fair Housing Council of Oregon. It's a nonprofit statewide civil rights organization promoting justice, equity, and inclusion in housing across Oregon. And this is Fair Housing Awareness Month. Um, if you go to their website, it's FHCO, Fair Housing Council of Oregon.org, FHCO.org. Uh, there will be virtual presentations, and there's a lot of information on that website. My guests today are Eliza Gallagher, she's an education and outreach specialist for the North and Central Coast region, which is Scapoose to Newport, and Samuel Goldberg, who is the statewide education and outreach specialist focusing on land use issues. When we talked earlier, Eliza, you mentioned about people, seniors with disabilities and social services for Spanish speaking residents and you know, people who are in long-term care facilities. I mean, things, since the pandemic, things have changed. We know that housing prices have soared. So kind of what's your take on where we are right now, who's being impacted and, and, and how that's affecting your work? Well, across the board, up and down the North and Central Coast, um, I, I've heard basically there's a just a huge lack of brick and mortar affordable housing uh, across the board for people who are uh, lower income, for people who are elders with disabilities. Um, there are there's a, a large Latinx uh, community on the coast, and there's uh, often a lack of Spanish language services or Spanish language materials. Um, fortunately, there there is some forward movement with some Spanish language uh, social services. There's Consejo Hispano in Astoria. There's also a, an organization affiliated with the Olala Center that's starting um, in Lincoln County. Uh, but what's happening with uh, the lack of affordable long care, long-term care uh, facilities, for instance, for seniors, is uh, they're being forced to uh, move inland from the coast. And if you, they were born and raised there, they're being forced due to the lack of affordability to. Uh, they're basically being displaced from their from their roots and their family resources. Uh, because they simply cannot afford the very limited uh, uh, long-term care or assisted living that is available. So um, there's, there's just an issue of how we are 
spending our funds to take care of our elders, to take care of our elders with disabilities, and to take care of our elders who cannot afford private long-term care facilities. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a, like I said, it's it's up and all up and down the coast. And there's also because of COVID, there's the additional uh, lack of uh, qualified staffing. Um, so the people who need the highest higher care, especially with the long-term care facilities, uh, are not getting the care they need. You know, I did not realize you mentioned, uh, Liza, that um, the, the counties, what the counties you mentioned, which are considered recreation, recreational counties? Uh, yeah, there was a, there was a finding, uh, that, um, and I had it up, but I don't know if I still do, uh, that basically talks about Clatsop, Tillamook, and uh, Lincoln counties being um, uh, qualified as recreation counties. I'm going to have to look it up again quickly. Um, I believe it was a HUD definition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it just shows the um, the 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 study shows the um, how the recreation counties are affecting uh, full time residents in those counties as far as far as affordability, as far as availability of housing. Um, and uh, and also kind of this increasing wealth gap because people who have these short-term rentals are benefiting financially, uh, but the people who are needing a home but can't move into that home because it's reserved for short-term rentals, uh, they may be homeless, they may lose a job because of their homelessness. And it, so it has this kind of, um, you know, exponential effect uh, going in the opposite directions for each one of them. So where are the two of you and where is the Fair Housing Council of Oregon focusing its attention now? What are some of the things that, um, that you all are doing to address these, you know, changing circumstances, which clearly have, its, have their roots in, you know, past decisions. And so what can we do now? Well, I think the primary thing we need to do, even though it doesn't sound like a, uh, a very specific action step, is to really understand the interdependent nature of how we all exist. Uh, that what happens to the folks who are suffering in Astoria or Classic County or up and down the coast, um, that affects everybody. It doesn't just affect them. Uh, it affects quality of life. It affects uh, uh, kind of the tension we live with. I know that Heritage Square, they, they've city council stepped back from that, but there was debate about, you know, including kind of workforce folks or uh, folks with uh, significant mental health issues kind of being right in the center of town. And that tension is there, but how do we address it in a way that, 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 that assures everyone that they're gonna be safe and that they're gonna have safe, stable housing and also the care they need? So the more I can work with uh, agencies, tenants, landlords, all up and down the coast, the more we can work together to solve those issues rather than feel like it's an us versus them. But I do pe think people need to understand that what is affecting low-income folks or people of color, uh, it, it affects everyone in the end. We can't, we don't live in silos for no, sure. No, absolutely. And you're in the process now creating multi-session diversity, equity, and inclusion series uh, that 
that discusses. So you're really wanting to let folks know, to educate people and to get that conversation going about, you know, how can we make a difference where we're dealing with such thorny, complex issues and people have um, so many different ideas and opinions and, and we don't know, you know, where, what is, you know, what, is this based on fact or is it based on, you know, we just don't know. So um, what are some of the things, we just have a few minutes left that you would like the listening audience to know, perhaps things we haven't talked about. Obviously it looks like we're gonna be having to see more density in our living situations with tiny homes and backyards. There are gonna be trade-offs that we have to make. Uh, but I wanna give you all this last few minutes to talk about the things that are uh, that you think are significant and important that you wanna let the listening audience know. Go ahead, <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the 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 things that uh, I, I would like everyone to know is that everyone um, everyone can make their voices heard in, in local government. Um, a lot of people come to uh, issues of housing and and land use, and and they just think. Oh, this is too too in the weeds. This is too wonky for me. I can't I can't wrap my head around these types of conversations. And and really, I mean, that's a lot of the fault of of the planning establishment and and local government that has made it so opaque. But uh, we do have a guide on our website uh, called the Good Neighbor Guide uh, that you can find there, and and it really breaks it down in some really simple ways and gives some tips on uh, on red flags to watch out for uh you know if if a particular development is being described in a particular way that uh it very often is coded you know discriminatory language um it'll it'll let you recognize that and and call that out and and testify uh in favor of things that are more in inclusive um and to yeah really know uh how best to use your energies uh, in a way that will uh, create a more inclusive community. Thank you, Samuel, uh, indeed. Um, and Eliza. Well, I just want to emphasize again, I, I don't know if it's appropriate to, to leave my actual email with you. But, oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, please, please anybody, do. Anybody who's listening uh, can contact me uh, and say, hey, we want you to come to our agency or our uh, homeowners association or our jurisdiction and talk to us about fair housing laws and discrimination. It's uh, just my first initial and last name. So it's E. Gallagher, E-G-A-L-A-H-E-R at fhco.org. Um, and I would be happy, whether it's via Zoom, as some people are more comfortable, or uh, driving up and down the coast, because it's a beautiful coast to drive up and down, to come to people's uh, uh, places of work, places of residency, and, and talk to them and problem solve together. I really hope that the more that uh, agencies and advocates and um, housing providers know about fair housing laws, the more they can work together because they'll be more on the same page about what is actually legal and what is actually discrimination. There won't be so much room for interpretation because it'll be all right there uh, spelled out for them. Um, so that's one thing um, I, I really wanna do is get me on the road to your places to talk to you about fair housing laws, both federal and state. 
because we didn't even talk about Oregon protected classes and there's a lot to talk about there as well. And yes, Oregon is singular, that's for sure. So there are things we need to learn. Mm -hmm. I am so grateful to both of you for the important work that you're doing, uh, for making the time to be here on the program today. Um, again, uh, Eliza Gallagher, she just gave us her email address and Samuel Goldberg are with the Fair Housing Council of Oregon. This is Fair Housing Awareness Month. And um, thank you both so much for your important work. And I do hope people will reach out. I have certainly learned a lot today and I hope everyone listening to this program has as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Donna. And my, my, my gratitude to Nevada, uh, to all of you who listen to KMUN and to this program, which airs the first Thursday of each month at 9 a.m. Um, my gratitude also to local talented banjo instructor, Michael Brunn for his original theme music for this program. Until next week. Well, right now, let's just all take, it's not next week, it's next month, actually. Um, let's find a moment right now to all take a very deep breath together. It is so good for body, mind, and spirit. And then with gratitude, let's focus on the things that are going well in our lives. There are always things that aren't going well. Let's focus on the things that are that we can celebrate in the midst of such upheaval and strife in our world today. And then give yourself a loving and compassionate hug or a pat on the back for being you and for doing the best you can because everyone is until they know better. For being here now in this moment, the only moment that exists, the now moment on the amazing planet we call Earth.